0: This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today about a topic near and dear to my heart, but one that we don't necessarily get to very often on the show. Uh, we talk about being missionary disciples and about what it means for us to uh, to live an evangelistic lifestyle. And typically, when we're talking about those ideas, we do that in a sense of the wider circle of influence that we have. But today, we're going to be talking about it within the most close sphere of influence that we have, and that's within our own families. And specifically, as parents, how we live that missionary lifestyle, passing on the faith to our children in a way that that honors their their dignity as persons, that honors their uh, development and their developmental stages, and what it looks like for us to be good parents as a vocation, as a calling, as a thing that we embody and, and move towards as kind of a purpose of life. We're talking today with Dr. Holly Taylor Coleman. She teaches theology at Providence College, which is founded by the Dominicans. It's in Providence, Rhode Island. She earned her PhD at Duke University, and her areas of speciality include Christian accounts of Judaism, as well as family, especially adoption. And she and her husband are parents to five children ages 25 to 15. She's got a book coming out on Baker Academic Press in January called Parenting, The Complex and Beautiful Vocation of Raising Children. Holly, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to talk with you.
0: Let's begin with the the question of the beginnings of the book. Books happen uh, out of either because you have a profound and deep desire to share something or other people have noticed uh, exceptional knowledge in an area and come to you and say, hey, you might not have thought about this, but we really want what we see in you to be seen more broadly. So would you write us a book? So tell us how this book came to be. You know, it's
1: funny that you should put it that way because I can really report Uh, both of those dynamics happening in different ways for me, you know, in the most fundamental sense, this comes out of my life experience. I have spent um, the last quarter century in two primary kinds of work. Uh, One is my work in studying and teaching theology. And the other is in uh, alongside my husband, in raising the five children that the Lord has given us, and I think it's uh, almost impossible to not see the connections between those two things mm-hmm. as you are doing them. And so I have found myself often reflecting on those. And in, in many ways, this book is a kind of offering out of, um, out of those years and that work. Um, I, I think the second is important too, though. I don't think I would have had the push to write the book without the presence in my life, especially as my own children got a little bit older as they moved into adolescence and now young adulthood, I found that I was um, hearing more and more from parent, younger parents, parents of younger children, who were coming to me quietly, um, usually privately, for all kinds of advice, for just a listening ear, Um, for somebody that they could um, share things that maybe they wouldn't share in public. Uh, Of course, that is a a natural dynamic in many ways as children get older. I realized how great the need was for for people to hear from people who are really doing this work um, day to day. And also, I found that sometimes I would make connections to theology that Seemed to me not particularly insightful, but I realized after mm-hmm. I said it that those not working in theology every single day had not necessarily thought about the same things in the same way.
0: So often we we think of parenting as the task that we have to do. Right? We're going to go home. We've got to manage these children. We've got to uh, pass on the faith. We've got to, all of these task related things. And then we have our faith over here on the other side, and maybe we share the faith, and maybe there's some cross pollination. But this language of vocation brings it into a a different category. Now, a a vocation is not something that is a list of tasks that you have to do or a job that you have to do, but rather a deep calling that is the center of identity. When we think about other other vocations, vocations to religious life, or vocations to the priesthood, or vocations even to marriage, there's an, uh, an identity component to a vocation. As you think about parenthood, what are some of the things that may be core to that question of vocation that that so often maybe the general public misses?
1: So let me first just begin by saying um, I really appreciate your way of describing that approach. It's funny because I did find myself drawn at moments to give a, a sort of practical word. It's certainly not just a theoretical book. Um, I was sort of emboldened in that in a way, I suppose, by the study that I've been able sometimes to do of the church fathers who seem to often combine um, very s- uh, serious and, um, and complex kinds of theological reasoning together with some very practical insights. So I sort of, um, in a certain way, was, was following in those footsteps, uh, but it really is not a how-to book. And even more, even more, I would say, I intentionally did not want to write a how-to book because I had the sense that for most of us, parents already have so many people telling us what we should do and what we shouldn't do, and um, in a phrase that seems to be gaining a lot of currency right now, how we're doing it wrong. We're doing it wrong. And my sense is that um, there is already so much at stake. Um, I'm sure that the vast majority of parents who are listening to my voice right now already have a sense that they really, really want to get this right. Um, There's a lot riding on it. And it's, it's so easy to get lost in those shoulds and shouldn'ts. And frankly, it's easy to have the anxiety of that overtake you and make it more difficult to do mm-hmm. the work instead of easier. Um, so in answer to your direct question, then, let me share one, one um, insight that I, that I offer very early on in the book maybe connected particularly to my perspective um, as an adoptive parent. So it's the case that in our family, all five of our children came to us via adoption. So in a lot of ways, we're doing just what other parents are doing. And in other ways, there are some differences, and especially sometimes differences in perspective. The point that I mean to emphasize is my own conviction that one of the ways that we can think about parenting is as a form of hospitality, that we can regard the children who are given to us as guests. I think there's a lot of good to come out of that image. Certain ways it doesn't work, but there's a lot of good to come out of it. It it reminds us that these children... Um, don't belong to us in the sense of that possessions belong to us. They are not, even when they look so much like us sometimes, they're not mini versions of ourselves. They are unique and unrepeatable persons who um, come and then really, uh, especially if we think about the active years when children are growing up, when they're living in our home, they're with us for a short time. And um, we're given the opportunity and the privilege of welcoming them. And um, I think above all, we can look to God's own forms of hospitality offered to us. Now, that's an unusual way to talk about it. We don't often think of it that way. But I think uh, perhaps one of the most foundational doctrines of the church, the doctrine of creation, can be fruitfully thought of as a kind of hospitality. What God does is to make room precisely for that which is not God, out of out of love, out of gratuity, not out of any necessity. And that's not a bad description of what we mean when we say hospitality. Um, and then if we think about more uh, human examples, I think the, the umbrella term of hospitality, let us turn to scripture and to tradition and to some of those venerable rich traditions that we have. Um, I mentioned in the book, like a lot of people, I, I really like um, Rublev's uh, fa- famous uh, icon. It's often called an icon of the Trinity, but the title of the icon that I like so much and many other people will be able to picture is called the hospitality of Abraham, because Mm -hmm. in an immediate and direct sense, what the image pictures is the three uh, mysterious strangers who come and to whom Abraham offers hospitality. And I think as we dig into those kinds of traditions and stories and so on, it can help us take a step back from 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 some of the busyness, some of the anxiety, and um, some of the less helpful ways that we can start to to live out our, our work of parenting.
0: Parenting is often seen as a response or a commentary on your own parents. Either you um, embrace the way that you were raised. You see that as positive, uh, whatever that method may be, whether it be Mm -hmm. helicopter parenting, whether it be um, micro micromanaging, or whether it be, you know, kind of almost neglectful. If you like that style of parenting, you carry that kind of parenting on. And if you didn't like the way you were raised, it seems almost like a pendulum swing to the other extreme of, well, I'm not going to do those things that my parents did How can we be more proactive in our thoughtfulness of how to parent, tying it into this theological idea of vocation, uh, Mm -hmm. rather than just letting our parenting philosophy be a response to something that we have received?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I'll start by saying that I actually am pretty convinced that all of us, wherever we land on that spectrum of the way in which we were parented, or how much we like the way in which we were parented or don't, all of us have new things to learn. And especially um, insofar as we're parenting at a new time, in a new space, and most of us are parenting with a spouse, that's a new undertaking. And so there is no way to avoid the task of being intentional about the situation um, and especially, you know, you, you began our conversation by framing parenting in, in terms of the larger work of discipleship. That's very much how I was thinking about it in writing um, this book. And I think that larger task makes it impossible <laughs> to parent um, on autopilot, so to speak. We have to do this um, to, to a greater or lesser degree. I think more practically speaking... I would say that my first it's probably a number of different fruitful ways that we could think about it but my first reaction and you'll see this through, as I write about it throughout the book is that we cannot do this in isolation either isolation as individuals or even isolation as married couples that can end up you know in the in the context of some other things i've mentioned feeling like a pressure cooker mm-hmm. And um, even even uh, to to push that a little bit further, I would say that I sometimes find uh, in in some of the most dedicated and well meaning parents, and indeed sometimes TL in myself. <laughs> dare I admit it? Um, that when when we come at it in that in that isolated way, I'll be more intentional. I'll do it just as I mean to do it. Um especially in our own, in our own moment, uh, social media and all, it can almost c- come to be a kind of a competitive activity. I'm going to be very intentional about this and I'm going to get the results that I want. And so um, the answer that I want to give first and foremost is we discern that in community with each other. Um, I think that there is nothing that is more valuable for parents who are trying to make their way day to day right now than a community in which they are able to speak honestly about what they are up to in their households, a community that they're able to look to for support, for honest feedback, and then also as part of that, a, a concrete practice of conversation. And I think it sounds very, very simple when I say it that way. But it's funny, isn't it? How those kinds of things get crowded out by other commitments, by priorities, by getting the laundry done, by a work project that needs to get finished. And and so I think it, it has to be um, that we make that commitment, that we say, I have to do this, and I can't just do it alone In a, with a sense that everything rests on my shoulders. I can't even uh, think of it as an ideal just to do it alone with God's help. I do it mm-hmm. with God's help and in um, lived community with the people of God. Yeah.
0: The book, again, is Parenting, the Complex and Beautiful Vocation of Raising Children by Dr. Holly Taylor Coolman uh and you've got children ages 25 to 15 um my uh my wife and I have nine children from 15 down to mm-hmm. 8 months and then I have uh one child I like to say from my Augustinian youth who I am the birth father of who is adopted she's uh turned t- what 20 uh 29 a couple of days ago yeah. um you are on the parenting front uh you- you're Lowest is where my highest is, so I'm gonna mine uh, your wisdom just a little bit. Um, what is a thing as you have uh, progressed into the older ages of children at home and 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 beyond? What is a realization that you came to in the last ten years uh, of maybe theological import? about raising those older children and being a parent in, the, in that stage.
1: Yeah there there are many. Um, it's, been, it's been surprising to me how much there is to unlearn and relearn as your, as your children grow. I think I would point to the conviction that I now have that there is a, a call, Parents, As children begin to enter the adolescent years, as those move on and then into young adulthood, um, a call to reach out to children intentionally and individually in ways that, that don't always make as much sense or happen um, in the same ways when they are younger. So um, for example, when children are younger, first of all, we, we are very easily drawn into interactions with individual children as we are caring for them physically, we're tying a shoe, we're rocking somebody to sleep. Um, and then also so many activities with younger children just make a lot of sense as a family. We just do a lot of things as our collective group. Um, and one of the things that happens of course we hope as our children grow is that they start to carve out their own spaces their own goals their own intentions etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think it is um, it bears tremendous fruit for parents to notice that happening and to welcome it and then to look for ways to connect more intentionally and individually to kids in those spaces. Now we are all limited in terms of time and energy and money. It is just not always possible. Um, I'll just give two examples from my from my own life. Couple times with my oldest um, daughter, I was able to find the resources that we needed to take her away for a weekend with the two of us. And in both of those cases, uh, spread out by a few years we spent the night at a b and that also had uh, horses, whether in a barn or not, because she is the quintessential animal lover. Always was, always, always will be. Um, with another of my children, I uh, it just worked out in that case. I was able uh, on my own to make a couple trips to uh, see him in college and go out for a lunch, a dinner, Whatever, just the two of us. Um, and that that doesn't happen just quickly or easily. You really have to think about that and look for ways for it to happen. And I would just offer a word of caution. It's not that attempts like that are always easy. It's not that they are always met by an adolescent with uh overwhelming joy and gratitude. Those <laughs> right. can be ticklish. <laughs> but I I don't regret one minute or one dollar mm-hmm. that was spent. In that way, and I'm continuing to learn. I would say, as my children move into young adulthood, what that means to continue that practice Mm -hmm. and um, meet them where they are um, in a way that's really different from a from a small child.
0: So inevitably, when we are growing as parents and we are learning as time goes on, specifically because there is an age range, uh, typically our younger children do not end up with the same parents that our older children had. Right, we uh, the older children look back and say, "Well, I would never would have got away with that," or something along those lines. Uh, how do you, or how did you, uh, kind of bridge that gap and and maybe extend all of branches to those older children when you uh, when you have changed your mind so dramatically about something in in parenting from when they were children to now?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Isn't that what all the oldest children? Say, uh, I myself am an oldest child, and that's what I say too. So, and I think you know, all parents wish that they could give a beautiful account of some change of philosophy, and uh, what uh, largely happens is they get worn down. So, it's good, to, good to say the truth. Um, I would say that actually the answer to your question is a little bit connected to my previous comment. Um, I have looked really hard for ways with my older kids to connect with them. And then I'll, I'll add another element to that. I've, I've looked for ways to try to connect them to my ongoing experience with their younger siblings. Now this requires a lot of prudence. You don't want to share with older children, inappropriate things, but, um, I have found that, that um, practicing some new vulnerability with my older children, I might note a specific issue or a specific circumstance where I'm struggling to really meet a younger child or where I think the child is, is struggling, et cetera. And um, in many ways, I'm just, I'm digging in on that oldest child uh, status. But I have found that to be um, a helpful thing. In other words, uh, and, and it kind of fits with a broader philosophy I have, I think that of course our children have different parents and of course our children have different places in the family. And um, in a lot of ways it makes sense to just recognize that and to give them their due in their place in the family. Um, to say to an oldest child, you are the oldest and you've really um, you know been a part of this family in a different way than your younger siblings are one of the things that you have. Is a kind of status as an as an as, as an elder among the children. So let me come to you right. and, and talk with you in that way. Um, and the babies, we just baby as long as we can, TL. That's the goal. Just keep babying those babies. <laughs> uh, you know, our our youngest children are, are 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 a very special treasure, and 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 I and I come to that in a different way.
0: You mentioned that all of your children came to you by way of adoption, and this is a very particular kind of hospitality um, mm-hmm. that, uh, that comes with sometimes extra family, right? Because you're bringing in those children. If it's an open situation, you also in some way have uh, that extended relationship coming in. Um, what do you see maybe as uh, as, as we're looking at adoption? what would you say to someone who's considering adoption as a a way to grow their family? What Mm -hmm. kinds of things should they uh, look forward to? What kinds of things should they prepare for? Uh, And just along those lines, what, what would be your advice?
1: I would say two things, I think Um, you can, you can imagine that adoption is a topic near to my heart as well. And I'm often having conversations with folks who are thinking about adoption or just stepping into adoption. And I'm, I'm always eager to encourage them, but, um, in a way I would just want to highlight two of the things that you've sort of hinted at. Um, one is that I think it is extraordinarily important for parents of adopted children to recognize from the first moment that their role as parents is not the role of replacing both parents. Very early on, I, I, I wrote an article on this in which I, I tried to argue that adoptive parents are both less than birth parents and also more than. Birth parents, but what they are not is a simple replacement in the same category out with the old, in with the new. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it, it makes a lot of sense if you if you imagine it in terms of hospitality. I think that adoptive parents in particular have a call not only to extend hospitality to that child as a person, but to, to all the parts of their child. And including relationships to their birth parents and birth families in whatever form they come to take, those are connections that I am convinced um, cannot and should not be erased. And it and it's it's a it's a complex work um, because it's also not for, for adoptive parents to decide exactly what form they will take or exactly what space needs to be left open in a child's in a child's life for that. But that adoptive parents do need to take the lead in Mm -hmm. in opening up spaces in making it clear to a child that that those are welcome and welcome topics. Um, I will say just one more word on that. In our own family, we've had some um, experiences of significant ongoing long-term relationship with birth families that have been... Deeply valuable, both for our children and for us. It's varied a little bit from one child to the other, but I would never say that those have been either simple or easy. It's it's you know humans. Mm -hmm. They're just complicated. Humans are complicated. (laughs) Um, And the second thing I would say uh, may be implied in what I've already said, but I think it's important for adoptive parents to assume. That there is no form of adoption in in any form that completely avoids loss. Adoption involves the loss of something. The loss of something. And that can be hard. That can be a real stretch. If you yourself, for example, are a brand new first time parent who's just thrilled to have um, this new baby right there. But it's, it's, a, it's a work of love. It's, it's a work of hard love to, mm-hmm. to, to keep that possibility open and to communicate to a child that that loss insofar as it exists is not a threat or a problem or um, something that has to be squeezed out. But that in a certain sense, the loss and the possible attendant grief itself can also be welcomed.
0: We're talking today with Holly taylor Coolman. She teaches theology at Providence College uh, and has a brand new book coming out on uh, Baker Academic Press called Parenting, The Complex and Beautiful Vocation of Raising Children. It's going to come out in January. We'll put a link to that over on our social media. Come be a part of the ongoing conversation, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On threads, the handle's also at step outside the walls. And we'll be right back with so much more right after this, listening to Outside the Walls with... TL Welcome back to Outside the Walls where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host TL talking today with dr holly taylor coolman she teaches theology at providence college in providence rhode island uh, i grew up down south in uh, in texas and then spent a lot of time in oklahoma and now i'm over on the other coast and so providence was not one of those schools that i was really aware of uh until oh maybe uh maybe four or five years ago and so if you are like me and many of you listening here on air uh over terrestrial radio, you are like me, you're, you're there in the middle of the country. If you've not heard of Providence, it is a fantastic institution with, stellar faculty. And of course, present company not excluded there. Uh, but, but more than just Dr. Coleman, there are a number of Dominicans that teach there. It's just a fantastic place. And it's one that you should consider as you're looking for a place for your children to grow in the faith and grow in their education. She's got a new book coming out on Baker Academic Press uh, in January but you can pre-order it now. It's called Parenting: The Complex and Beautiful Vocation of Raising Children. One of these days we'll we'll bring you in on uh, on one of those theological topics that you teach on, but for now we're going to talk about the theological topic of parenthood. And I want to return to this question of vocation because I I'm, I'm interested in in this language of vocation and in what you see as the difference between a parent who who sees their job as a secular task or, or even this thing that I, you know, I've got to get my kids through school. I've got to do this next task and this next task until I finally get them off. As opposed to this idea of parenting is the vocation that God has given me, not only for this moment, but there's a longer view to it.
1: Well, I think the answer that I want to give is going to sound a little bit obvious coming from somebody who, Especially teaches theology. Um, you think I might have a more complicated answer, but my first answer is to understand parenting as a vocation means that you, above all, see yourself, see these younger humans that, with whom you have been entrusted in relationship to God. <laughs> you understand yourself to be given this task by someone other than the child who's standing in front of you asking you to please uh, tie their shoes again or uh, to please uh, come and lie down with them in bed because they don't want to be there by themselves. Um, And uh, I think that makes all the difference in the world. I am uh, in relationship with my children and, and often serving them and sometimes teaching them both in with the sense that I am called to this work by God. I think uh, absolutely essential is the sense that I come to this work as someone who knows herself to be beloved and cared for by God. And then I see these children also as belonging, in the ultimate sense, if they belong to anybody, to God. Uh, And again, uh, that I've been offered this opportunity of relating to them in a certain way by divine providence, Um, but that that's not not the ultimate horizon. Um, I think it changes a lot. Just one one thing I would note is, um, I think especially given the pressures of the present moment and the uh, ambitions of, of parents who do take the task very seriously, they want to succeed, we can fall into the trap of watching very hard to see where our children are succeeding and specifically where they are giving us confirmation that we've done a good job. There's no getting around that. We, we, we're going to feel that way. But I think the concept of vocation relativizes that a little bit. We don't need our children to succeed in certain ways uh, in the in the primary sense, we look to God to know whether we have been faithful to the task that we're given, and we give our children to God. We put our children in, in God's hands um, as they move forward.
0: There's something about the theology that I think helps us in parenthood as well, and that's understanding uh, who God is. You know, we have these pictures sometimes in our head that we have derived just from experience, maybe we've heard it in a homily, uh, of, of God as omnipotent, overseeing, directing every aspect of life, you know, any kind of, any number of incomplete pictures of God um, that then affect the way that we parent, because we're trying to in some way mirror that. So I think that there is an importance of of good and thorough and proper understanding of of who God is as person that will inform us and enable us to be uh, to be better parents. The phrase comes to my mind. I think it's Ephesians three that talks about. uh, I give you one of Paul's benedictions where he's talking about um, giving thanks for for the people around him, but he says. the fatherhood of God, by whom every family receives its name, right? That there's something about who God is that helps us understand how to be family.
1: You know, sometimes when I am talking with my students at Providence College about this, I make a point of reading with them a text that we don't always include in introductory theology classes, but to me, it's important, and that is part of the text of Hosea. In mm. this, will seem like a perhaps to one side, but I'll, I'll I'll try to say what I see as the connection. Hosea, we have the jarring reality in which God calls the prophet to marry a woman whom He knows will be unfaithful to Him, indicating God indicating to the prophet that His life will thus exist as a kind of illustration of the relationship relationship between God and Israel. And Hosea is called to this work of not just grim fidelity to this wife, but tender love for this wife, mm-hmm. to go and seek her and find her. Um, when I, I find that when I lay this, this uh, narrative out for my students, they are very interested indeed. They live in the world of uh, people in relationships and into relationships, out of relationships. And I say to them, please, as we are reading through these texts and you are trying to understand exactly who this God is, taught, we've looked at the God who delivers to Moses, the two tablets, and like that, can you also stay with me here and remind yourself that it's the same God who commands Hosea to speak tenderly to the wife who has treated him badly. And God says, that's what I'm like. That's who I am. I'm the God that speaks tenderly and knows your name. And I think uh, that image is indispensable for parents. I spoke earlier about sort of reaching out to teenagers. A lot of times that's the moment where it can feel like, your, teen, your child is ready in different ways to turn her back on you or to uh, mistreat you in, in, in some way. Um, and I think if we look to that example, we're called to continue to speak tenderly to her.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, a paradigm shift and a challenge from this kind of maybe uh, maybe it's not prominent it felt prominent to me this idea of authoritarian you'll do what i say as long as you live under my roof we, we see the the representation in the in the media um and and yet the the tenderness of god offers us another way but also challenges us to that other way uh and something we would talk about my wife and i when we did marriage preparation back in tulsa uh was that our children's f- first view of who god is comes from us and if we present them a view that is harsh and overbearing or aloof and distant that's the view that they're going to have of the divine not be- because we are that first example of what authority looks like and so it it challenges us and requires us to shape and form our view of god accurately so that we can be accurate representations
1: and i think it challenges us also maybe this is another way to talk about vocation to remember that every individual vocation is rooted in the most fundamental vocation for for any uh, catholic and any christian which is a vocation established in baptism mm-hmm. and that is a story of you and i being called in being welcomed when when we were turned away Um, and very few of us were called in by a harsh voice thundering from the heavens uh, and turned in that way. But that's, that's the fundamental story that our parenting is rooted in. When we did not love God, God loved us. And that I think more than anything else is, as you say, the, the story that we want to tell in an embodied way to our children. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: we, we love them.
0: As you're growing in that vocation, of course, one of the ways that you can form yourself and expand your horizons is by reading the book, Parenting the Complex and Beautiful Vocation of Raising Children coming out in January on Baker Academic Press. What would be some other ways that a person could deepen their understanding of, of, who God is, strengthen their theology and, and their understanding of vocation?
1: I think, um, this and this is actually the focus of, of one of the chapters in this book, I, I alluded to it earlier, but let me come back to it. Parenting is so demanding, and, and especially when children are young, and especially when there are many of them. It's a very demanding work. But I think it is essential— not just alongside parenting, but integral to it for parents to continue to deepen their own intimate connection to God in their own ongoing journey of of personal growth, of healing for themselves. Um, I talk about this is not usually the, the what parenting books focus on, but I I, I talk about the need for, parents to find practices of rest, practices of play, practices of joy now, I'm speaking in it about it in a very embodied way but um, you know my own experience is that it is in not just strictly thinking about but in living out those realities that we come to be, deeply convinced, convinced in our in our souls and convinced in our, in our bodies that um, that we do serve a God whos who's merciful and who delights in us. Um, and I think it's you know that of course people always repeat the phrase you can't pour from an empty cup and I, I do mean something like that. Um, but I think there's a richness there, uh, and I think there's a temptation, um, maybe even especially for Catholics, to imagine that by the time you're a grown-up and you've had children, you've you've been formed. Now that now you just move onward. But of course, that is yeah. not true. The faith is so rich, and the and the possibilities for us to fully absorb um, what God wants to show us and tell us are infinite. So we mm-hmm. have to, we have to, we have to feel okay about setting aside the time and the energy and, um, and doing some of those things. Yeah.
0: I would be remiss if we had an entire episode of, on parenting, if we did not discuss some moment of unexpected and profound joy and or humor that you experienced as a parent, maybe We'll say in the last five years, we'll make it somewhat recent. If you can share a story that does not encroach on the privacy of your children, but give us some fun story from your time of parenting.
1: Well, this is just a small moment, but it did really make me laugh out loud. Uh, This involves a conversation with my oldest child. I I didn't say it, but um, my oldest daughter is married now, and uh, she's a mother herself. So this gives me an opportunity to say the most important thing about myself, which is that I am now grandmother to the smartest and most beautiful of toddler course. in the world. Um, so she and so she and I have new things to talk about now these days. And we were sitting just the two of us and talking, and I was talking about a concern that I had about one of her younger siblings, trying to trying to do that in an appropriate way, but Uh, Maybe I got a little uh, carried away and I don't know what to do. And I've tried to, and and, um, and then finally, I just sort of uh, sputtered down to a stop and looked at her and she looked at me and she said, teenagers, what are you (laughs) going (laughs) to (laughs) do? And I thought, yep, that's, that's about right. (laughs) Sometimes it's not any, uh, any uh, great word of wisdom or insight it's just the ability to sit together and laugh and keep going
0: yeah and i'm sure that at that moment every every teenager moment that that child had provided for you rushed back into your head and also provided maybe some context because oh well you i guess you turned out okay despite how you behaved as a teenager
1: absolutely there was one moment i'll say when that when that child did actually call me to say very briefly, mom, I don't know. I, I just want to, after, you know, marriage and and child, I'm sorry for all that. (laughs) (laughs) Not every parent gets that phone call, but I think that's kind of development that happens along the way. So.
0: (laughs) Well, the book is Parenting the Complex and Beautiful Vocation of Raising Children. It's going to come out, uh, towards the middle of January on Baker Academic Press. You can get it right now. Uh, you can pre-order it over on Amazon, I'm sure you can get it on Baker Academic's website. You can also get it in your Verbum library. You can go to the Verbum storefront and pre-order it today. It'll be there, uh, co-launched at the same time. Uh, Dr. Holly Taylor Coolman uh, teaches over at Providence College theology, uh, and we're so grateful that you took the time to come and talk with us today.
1: Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.
0: If you missed any part of my conversation with Dr. Coolman. Maybe you want to go back and hear something she said again, or maybe as she was talking, someone popped into your mind and you thought they would really enjoy or benefit from the things that Dr. Kuhlman was saying. Well, it's very easy to share this conversation with them by going over to OutsideTheWalls.com. There you'll find not only this episode, but all of our episodes throughout the years available for easy access and easy sharing. There's over 450 episodes there now, because as of next week, we will be celebrating nine years of being on the air. Over the course of those nine years, we've had these f- over 450 conversations with bishops and priests and authors and religious sisters and parents and theologians and so much more. It's been an absolute pleasure to be uh, on this journey of, of growing in faith and listening to one another And uh, anytime you hit a milestone, it just causes you to reflect. And I'm so grateful uh, that I've been given the opportunity to have these conversations and so thankful that you have joined me on this journey. I want to invite you over to social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls and on threads, the handle is at step outside the walls, because I would love to hear from you, whether you've been with me for all nine years or have just come recently I'd love to hear about a conversation that made a difference for you, uh, maybe changed a way that you thought about something or gave you encouragement and hope to take a next big step. Come and share that story with me over on social media. And if you love the show and you want to see it continue to grow and thrive, I want to invite you to be a part of our Patreon support community. Our patrons help keep us on the air by providing the funds essential to maintaining all of the things in the studio and the the hosting expenses that just basically helps cover the costs of the show. And in gratitude, we give them extra segments each and every week, as well as some extra content that you can find uh, some examples of by going to outsidethewalls.com, clicking that Patreon link, and looking through the older extra segments, looking through the various things we have. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for all that you do and all that you have done over the years. Uh, you, your friendship and partnership mean the world. Now, let's turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. <phone rings> That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the catechism, to the fathers and doctors of the church, and so much more, including books like Holly's, Parenting the Complex and Beautiful Vocation of Raising Children. You can learn more over at verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the book of Romans, as we were talking earlier about hospitality and how Uh, The the relationship of the church kind of mirrors this relationship that we're to have among family. This reading seemed particularly appropriate. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That reading comes from the book of Romans, chapter 12. I can't tell you how easy it is to take a scripture like this and to categorize it in such a way that it never really touches us. Uh, These are such challenging, short little sentences that just kind of pile on one after the other. And if we think about them in terms of this nebulous or ethereal church with people that don't really ruffle us because we only ever see them a little bit of the time each week, uh, it can seem, oh, this is is no problem at all. But if we start to think about it in light of the family— Uh, it can have a very different perspective. So I encourage you to do a little bit of a a personal lexio with it. As I was reading it here this first time, the one that stood out to me, uh, based on our conversation uh, earlier, was the bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse them. And the very first thought that popped into my head, all you parents will understand this, is teenagers, right? Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. But rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Oh, what a beautiful picture this can be uh, for the family if we let these words kind of wash over us and be our guiding principles as we try to walk this communion together. Uh, this this passage of scripture is put into maybe some more practical perspective if we look at it through the lens of the words of Pope St. John Paul II in Familiaris Consortio. The family, which is founded and given life by love, is a community of persons, of husband and wife, of parents and children, of relatives. Its first task, is to live with fidelity the reality of communion in a constant effort to develop an authentic community of persons. The inner principle of that task, its permanent power, and its final goal is love. Without love, the family is not a community of persons, and in the same way, without love, the family cannot live, grow, and perfect itself as a community of persons. What I wrote in the encyclical Redemptor Hominis applies primarily and especially within the family as such. Man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless. If love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. The love between husband and wife, and in a derivatory and broader way, the love between members of the same family, between parents and children, brothers and sisters, and relatives, and members of the household, is given life and sustenance by an unceasing inner dynamism, leading the family to ever deeper and more intense communion, which is the foundation and soul of the community of marriage and the family. This communion is rooted in the natural bonds of flesh and blood and grows to its specifically human perfection with the establishment and maturing of the still deeper and richer bonds of the spirit. The love that animates the interpersonal relationships of the different members of the family constitutes the interior strength that shapes and animates the family communion and community the Christian family is also called to experience a new and original communion which confirms and perfects natural and human communion. In fact, the grace of Jesus Christ, the firstborn among many brethren, is by its nature an interior dynamism, a grace of brotherhood, as St. Thomas Aquinas calls it. The Holy Spirit who is poured forth in the celebration of the sacraments is the living source and inexhaustible sustenance of the supernatural communion that gathers believers and links them it with Christ and with each other in the unity of the Church of God. The Christian family constitutes a specific revelation and realization of ecclesial communion, and for this reason too, it can and should be called the domestic church. Family communion can only be preserved and perfected through a great spirit of sacrifice. It requires, in fact, a ready and generous openness of each and all to understanding, to forbearance, to pardon, to reconciliation. There is no family that does not know how selfishness, discord, tension, and conflict violently attack and at times mortally wound its own communion. Hence, there arise the many and varied forms of division in family life. But at the same time, every family is called by the God of peace to have the joyous and renewing experience of reconciliation. That is communion reestablished, unity restored. In particular, participation in the Sacrament of Reconciliation and in the banquet of the one body of Christ offers to the Christian family the grace and the responsibility of overcoming every division and moving towards the fullness of communion willed by God, responding in this way to the ardent desire of the Lord that they may be one. That reading comes from Familiaris Consortio. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and being a part of this conversation. And now come be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls on threads. They handle is at step outside the walls. Today's show is brought to you by Susan wise and all of those who support the show through Patreon, go to outside the walls.com. Click that Patreon link to learn more. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This podcast is part of the Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.